0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repinchek, your host at National Parks Traveler.
1: Yellowstone, Biscayne, Channel Islands, and Acadia National Parks, as well as Bering Land Bridge National Monument, those are just some of the National Park System units that have increased access for visitors. While there continues to be concerns, that poor social distancing could lead to the spread of COVID-19, testing in Yellowstone failed to detect a single case of the disease after nearly two weeks of operations. That was just some of the news we relayed to you last week. We also ran a provocative essay on a look back at Mountains Without Handrails, Reflections on National Parks, a book from 1980 that questioned how much recreational access should be provided in the parks and how people experience the parks. We also told you about a new litter of mountain lion kittens at Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area in California, and about the opening of Trail Ridge Road across the roof of Rocky Mountains National Park. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we're going to delve into landscape photography in the national park system. Good photography is about creating a feeling of things, rather than a picture of things. That's the philosophy of our guest, Clyde Butcher, acclaimed photographer and environmentalist. You might be familiar with his iconic black and white large format landscape photos that often are part of larger efforts to protect fragile ecosystems that he knows so well. And as Lynn Riddick found out in her conversation with Butcher from his home in Venice, Florida, he doesn't mind wading chest deep through a cypress swamp or facing off against a hoofed animal to show why a place is worth protecting.
0: Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at Friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org.
2: a Clyde Butcher photograph is to be in a Clyde Butcher photograph. His wide-format black-and-white images capture environments so lush and rich, so seemingly untouched and unspoiled, you feel almost fully immersed in the landscape. His photos are, at the same time, both simple and grand. But not only are his photographs all inspiring in their sheer magnificence, they provide a powerful voice in the preservation of natural beauty. Throughout his career, Butcher, along with his wife, Nikki, have been a part of this effort, donating images and lending their support to numerous conservation efforts, especially throughout Southern Florida, including the Everglades and Big Cypress National Preserve. And for those contributions, Butcher has received the Ansel Adams Award for Conservation Photography, and the Florida Wildlife Federation Conservation Communicator of the Year, among many other awards. Many of his photographs are taken in national parks and preserves, as well as in other spots around the country and globe. His pictures tell a story that words cannot. Clyde, welcome to The Traveler.
3: Well, uh, thank you for having me on. Well, this is gonna be an interesting adventure.
2: Well, where to begin? Your stunning and iconic black and white landscape photography has been exhibited all over the world. You've gotten prestigious commissions, including one from the United Nations. You've published books. You have done documentaries. You've won not just photography awards, but awards recognizing your contributions to conservation and environmental causes. And who knows how many of your photographs are displayed in living rooms and office buildings everywhere. So Clyde, How would you describe your photographs to someone who has never seen them?
3: The concept started about 1970. And I said, uh, that's when I bought my first by 7 camera that I felt if people were going to get a feeling for what I'm photographing, the, the photographs would have to be large. And the reason now I make them up to nine feet, actually I've made them up to 20 some feet, but the reason I make my photographs large So, you can't see them. Does that make sense?
2: Not really. Explain it a little.
3: Well, okay. Most people don't understand how they see. You only see about four to five degrees. You perceive maybe up to 180 degrees, but you only see a very small slot. In other words, if you're sitting across the table from someone, you can barely see both of their eyes. So, when you're out in nature, you have to scan to see what's your, particularly to be safe, you scan, you look, you look forward, you look sideways, you look up, you're always scanning to see where you're at. So if I make my pictures large, and if you stand close enough, you have to scan them to see it. And that gives you a feeling of being in them.
2: And so what else can you say about describing the photos to someone?
3: Well, basically, I try to walk people through the image. Visually. So the, the two sides of the picture and the foreground and the top are actually more important than the center. Usually, the center of the photograph, a lot of the times, is where I want you to end up. So I kind of walk people through with the way I ar- arrange the environment.
2: And ClydeButcher.com is where to go to take a look. Yep. Your photography has evolved over the course of your career to the signature style that is immediately recognizable. Tell me about your journey to this point and your early inspiration from Ansel Adams and Yosemite National Park.
3: Well, I, I first, uh, actually, my folks took me to some of the national parks when I was 10 years old. And that, that was my second camera I had when I was taking pictures then. And when I was in, living in California, when I was an architect, I was an architectural uh, graduate. And when I was in Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California. Uh, we would journey into the woods, and I would just, uh, the Redwoods was, I guess, probably my most um, favorite park, because you're walking in a park that's actually the system is 60 million years old, and the trees are 2,000 years old. So that's, I think, the the forest that gave me the feeling of the prehistoric nature of nature. And I've I've used that idea looking for things that haven't been changed. Um, That's why you don't usually see any kind of uh, buildings or people. Because 65 billion years ago, there was no people. So why should have people on photographs?
2: (laughs) Well, in addition to the parks, you also drew inspiration from the 19th century Hudson River School movement of landscape painters. Describe how these paintings looked, and what was it about them that appealed to you also?
3: Well, you know, there's a painting, I think it's by church, in the National Gallery in D.C. It's about maybe 15, 20 feet wide, and there's a bench in front of it. And every time Nikki and I go there, we sit there for probably an hour to study that painting. And they're doing this. they do this similar thing uh, using light and perspective that I did as do. They're basically pain, painting with wide angle. lot well, the ones that I liked were like if you look at paintings, you can see if the painter saw in wide angle, normal, or telephoto. Painters that maybe don't realize they're doing that, but that's what they do. And the uh, wide angle view of being able to walk through the picture what attractiveness. And it's also the way you use lights and darks, lights and darks walk through the picture. It helps you uh, work your way through a picture.
2: I haven't met you, but looking at photos of you online, I see you have a bushy white beard and mustache. You wear glasses and there's lots of photos of you wearing a cowboy hat or a baseball cap. So we can see what you look like, but how would you describe your personality and the traits that are essential to your work?
3: Well, I'm wearing a cowboy hat right now.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh I don't know. I'm pretty easy going. I I relate I relate to people as individuals. Um, I I can communicate with uh truck drivers, dishwashers, presidents of the United States, senators, governors, artists. I, I can really kind of just flow with uh anybody. It's and that's something that we're gonna to have to learn to do as a world is to be able to deal with everybody. And that's what I think I am, is I'm kind of a pretty mellow. We've been married 57 years, so I guess I'm not I'm mellow enough to stay married. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm very mellow. Um, kind of set in my ways, though, about the environment. I think I think people don't maybe they don't have the impetus or the time or the thought pattern to think what's important in nature and in life. And this this world we live in is probably well, I can't imagine to be a better planet anywhere else in the universe because of the we're the right distance from the sun. We have the you know, water, we have all the elements it takes to to make life. And I'm I get a little upset that, uh, as humans, we're abusing this w- lovely world of ours.
2: I want to talk about that in a little bit, but I wanted to say that you didn't mention patience as being a personality trait of yours,
3: but surely uh, well, it must be. Well, it's patience and persistence. There's, okay, there's, there's, uh, there's one photograph I explained where patience was involved. It was a shot I did up on the Panhandle, so it's a dune shot, dunes and dunes at the beach. We were there from sunrise to sunset for five days, and and took two negatives. We waited for the right light, the right sun, and everything. Then there's another example. It's January 1st of 2000. Uh, we always take a swamp walk, and I found this really neat composition, and. Weather wasn't right. The plants weren't right. The light wasn't right. Wind wasn't right. Nothing was right. But I knew that I knew it was a beautiful concept. So I went back and forth every year for nine years until I got that photograph. And it was a, about a two and a half hours walk each way through the swamp to get there.
2: When I look at your work, I feel like I could step right into one of your landscapes or paddle through uh, a grove of cypress trees. Your pictures have almost a three-dimensional quality. How are you able to capture such depth?
3: Uh, That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel a shot. And usually if it feels good, it probably will work good. I like to feel like I'm there and when I'm... Most, most of my pictures that are really uh, that are exciting I'm in the water. Uh, the camera usually is about somewhere between two and three feet off the water with a tripod because everything was I uh, used to do was with a uh, large format. so you had to use a tripod and uh, so by being there with a camera where if you were in a canoe, you, you're the, the lens is where you would be in a canoe. And so that's why I think one reason, but also I I have I'm an architect. In architecture, you have to understand perspective. In architecture, you have to learn how to design an entrance to a building that attracts people. So I think that was one of my learnings. periods I've learned how to to do what I'm what I'm doing now is my uh, uh, study in architecture. I want to design a building. I have to take a three dimensional idea and put it down on a piece of paper. So, in photography, the way I do it, I have to take a three dimensional idea and put it down on a piece of paper. So it's very similar.
2: Tell me more about your equipment, your camera, and a little bit about the silver gelatin hand processing that you employ.
3: Well, um, I basically have several cameras up until about Four years ago, I was exclusively shooting with film. I, I, the camera's in sizes from four inches by five inches up to 12 by 20 inches. And so I had a four by five, a five by seven, eight by 10, 11, 14, and 12 by 20. So each, each format, you can do certain things with. In other words, what I can do with a 4x5 for depth of field, you can't do with a 12x20. To give you an idea, the wide angle lens I use on a 4x5 is 47 millimeters. The wide angle, which is the same degree of angle on the 12x20 is 210 millimeters. So imagine trying to get everything in focus from two feet to infinity with a 210 inch lens. It's, it's impossible. So you have to have scenes that are vast, that uh, that are farther away from you. You can't have that real close and real far. With the larger, larger the camera, the more the depth of field. So I have a camera for each when I'm doing certain things that take certain kind of certain format out with me. It's kind of kind of technical, but it's pretty simple when you understand it.
2: What about the processing?
3: I, I use I've been using uh, Kodak. Pmax one hundred, and whether it's four by five or twelve by twenty, I use normal developer. Uh, I don't do anything anything fancy in development because I just develop for the eighteen percent gray, and I, I shoot for the for the sh- I actually shoot for the ha- shadows and process for the highlights. So that it's basically it's just it's just uh, the old since we've been doing since you know the eighteen hundreds. Better film than they had back then. The film today is really fantastic. it's it's um, it's not as technical and sharp as digital, but when you get a large format negative, you can make a nice size print. i mean, I made it with my twelve by twenty. I made a print that was twenty three feet, and you couldn't couldn't see the grain. Uh, it was tack sharp twenty three feet.
2: What is it about black and white photography that just always looks so sensational? Well,
3: because you're seeing the image and not the color. You're seeing the detail. You're see, you're you're not being confused by all the color. Now, you know it's I call color a Xerox of nature, and black and white an interpretation because you're not. It's not really real. It's black and white. But what is more important? In life, air or water, you have a you have a pre- preference. No, <laughs> yeah, you, you like to have both. Uh-huh. Uh, what I'm saying in the black and white in nature, every part of the picture in nature has the same importance, whether it's the sky, the tree, the grass, or the water. So if it's, it's black and white, it becomes a oneness with with life.
2: Big Cypress National Preserve and Everglades National Park have been your go-to places and times when your soul needed a little mending, including the death of your 17-year-old son by a drunk driver. Tell me about these places, what someone might not know, and why they are so special to you.
3: Well, you have to realize the Everglades. And and now we consider everything, Big Cypress, Everglades, all the Everglades. It's prehistoric. Uh, It's basically hasn't changed in, well, 10,000 years. We call Florida organic. We call out west geological. So everything in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Everglades is, is alive and crawling and doing all kinds of things, making nice noises, uh, birds, gators, snakes, turtles, mountain lions, bears, bobcats, rabbits, squirrels, snakes, hogs. Not everything you can think of is out there. So, and when you're out there, and you have to realize there's no, there's no. um, Well, there are a few. There's very few trails. I've been walking through the big the Everglades since 1984, and have never met another person.
2: I need to take a short break here, but when we return, I want to ask you about your work in conservation your work in the national parks, and maybe get some photography tips from you.
3: Okay.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official non-profit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
2: We are back and I'm talking with legendary landscape photographer, Clyde butcher from his home in Venice, Florida. I want to read you a quote. Okay. People protect what they love, but you can't protect what you don't understand. Clyde butcher's images make us want to understand because he touches our hearts and our heads follow. No one can view butchers remarkable work without being awestruck by the embodiment of nature herself. Clyde, as you know, this is a quote about you from Jean-Michel Cousteau, an explorer, environmentalist, and filmmaker. Can you point to a specific place and time when you had an environmental awakening?
3: I've always loved nature. I've always been involved in it. I loved Ansel Adams' work and Edward Weston and William Bullock and all those photographers. But I never related it to conservation. I always related it to art. Then I think it was in 1988. I was asked by the Water Management District here in Florida to do some work for their office because we were having, we were being sued by the federal government over our our mishandling of the Everglades. And he, he saw my work in an art show and wanted his work my work there. But unfortunately, he also he wanted about 30 pieces, 40 inches by 60 inches framed, and he couldn't pay for them. He says, we want them, but we can't pay for them. So I said, okay. I thought about it for a month or so, and I said, well, I think it's important for people to see what the Everglades is about. And when I did that, then I got to talk to all the guys in the back rooms that were the environmentalists. So I think it was really my an introduction to the involvement of government in the environment and, and the problems there are they're having with the environment because of people. Uh, it's it's the, the, And the thing that you have to realize is you have more people, you have more problems.
2: As you know, The damage from oil exploration at Big Cypress National Preserve is a severe threat ecologically. The Traveler's Kurt Repenshek has reported on the issue and uh, shot some pretty alarming footage of the seismic lines that were created from clearing and ditching and channeling through the preserve. These swaths go some 100 miles and are as wide as 20 feet in some places dead zones have resulted and many endangered and threatened species are even at further risk. How are you lending a voice to conservation efforts here at a place so close to your heart?
3: Well, I tell you what, it's not going to do any good unless we get rid of the gasoline and and gas. So the solution is more is a little bit more complicated than just saying don't do it. You got to say you got to make it not available, not needed. What you if you need gas, because gas right now runs the world. It, it's, it, without oil, the world shuts down. Now, in our house here in, uh, in Venice, we have enough solar that runs our house, enough solar that charges our electric car, and we get at the end of the year, we get hundred dollars back from FPL. l now. Unfortunately, that's what we're going to have to do. You're going to have to commit to doing the right thing and not burning the gas. And that's the only way you're going to solve the problem is not creating the problem.
2: What other organizations have come to you for photography requests uh, to help promote conservation efforts? And what would you say are some of your conservation contributions that you're most proud of?
3: Well, actually, uh, the DEP is one of them. Department of Environmental Protection, I've done a lot of work with in Florida. See, there's where you're, you're getting more more bang for your buck. We've 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 created thousands of posters for the Department of Environmental Protection, which they post all around for every every place that uh, is part of their facility. Give them uh, give them away to people. Um, it's been really uh, effective. But we don't accept money for anything we do from the environmental people. Uh, we discovered it's much easier to do do projects with them if they don't have to write out a purchase order. They don't have to pay for anything. Like the project we did for uh, Cuba, the UN, I didn't get paid for that. The project I did for...
2: uh, that was Go back and explain that a little bit. That was uh, a commission through the United Nations to photograph some mountainous areas of Cuba.
3: Correct. Uh, 2002 was a year to celebrate the mountains around the world. And Cuba was chosen to have the conference for the uh, Caribbean. So I, I went there three different, three different times and uh, photographed a total of 30 days. And then I did a book, which I paid for. Nobody paid for that. And uh, uh, we, we, we gave it, uh, it was really fun. We did a, a poster run of, uh, I think it was the Sierra Maestre Mountains. And we, we took a whole flock of them and gave them to Cubans. I don't think they ever, I'm not sure they ever have any artwork. It was, they, was just, they were really excited about getting a poster. The Wilderness Society, have done a lot of work with Wilderness Society. In fact, we did a, a project um, on the Escalante. Uh, I did for the Wilderness Society to show the photographs to uh, President Clinton. Then Clinton created a monument from, from that. That was an experience, interesting experience of photographing because you're in this wilderness area and there's it's free range cows. So you walk along on the middle of the road, here comes a whole bunch of cows. It was, it was kind of interesting.
2: I want to talk a little more about your work in the national parks and national recreational sites. Yeah. How have the parks changed since you started photographing them? And I'd like to see, I'd like to hear what you think has changed for the better and then what you think has changed for the worst.
3: That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hard thing to analyze. One of the main things that's happening, is, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a sad thing and a good thing. There's actually too many people in the parks. Uh, in some of the particular parks, there's so many people and to the famous ones, and they're not going to the ones that are not as famous, which are probably nicer because there's not as many people. Uh, if you go out in the Redwood areas, if there's not a sign to go somewhere, you won't find people. So if you start exploring the national parks in your own way, forget about the trails and such, it's pretty nice. But if you have to stay on the trails, uh, you're gonna get involved with lots and lots of people. And you don't have that serenity. Like in the, in the Everglades, I'm out there, you know, you're know, you by, Nikki and I are by ourselves, and, and able, it's very peaceful. Sometimes you look on the horizon, you think, oh, it's a dinosaur going to come over that horizon or something, you know. It's so primitive.
2: The Redwoods, the Everglades, Yosemite. What are some of your other favorite parks that you feel offer the most diversity and interesting scenery to photograph?
3: Well, the Redwoods and the the Everglades is probably my two first loves. The the, uh, Yosemite is probably number three. All the other ones are a bunch of rocks. <laughs> Smoky Mountain, the Smoky Mountains are nice though. Smoky Mountains are nice. There's a lot of neat stuff in the Smokies. There's a lot of uh, living, growing stuff there. Unfortunately, they've cut the forest down an awful lot there. There's are very few uh, native trees left. There's a con- Congaree is interesting. People don't even know. I don't know if you, have you heard of the Congaree National Park.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's in uh, South Carolina. Just south of, uh, I think Columbus, it's the the oldest hardwood growth in the East Coast. Arcadia is fun. It's uh, for, for taking pictures. Arcadia is really neat. One I haven't been to with, that I want to go to is Big Ben. Then there's Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree. I used to live pretty close to Joshua Tree, by Palm Springs, and that's kind of an interesting place too. But it's it's. It's not as alive. Big Cypress and Everglades National Park and the Redwoods are a living, breathing community, like, like the Smoky Mountains. is a living, breathing park.
2: Let me ask you this question. When I take photos, especially when I'm traveling, I tend to frame out anything that isn't pretty. You know, I'll compose a shot um, to eliminate nearby crowds or I'll frame out a dumpster or a power line. So there is a certain altering or denial of reality at work here do you have any thoughts on that
3: who wants a picture of reality <laughs> we got that every day if you look at the television set. you go down the the grocery market you go shopping you don't need that stuff we got plenty of that what we need is a relief from all that reality so don't worry about if you want it. i mean to me that's it's like people ask me to take stuff of pictures of the problems, like the, the oil problems, the, the Amazon problems, the junkyards, the, the, the garbage dumps. And I want people to know that there's still beauty left in the world. I don't want them to... They know all this other stuff is happening. They, they, they know that uh, we're stupid and we, we want to see what's left that's good in fact, I, did a, I gave a, a series of frame photographs to the uh, Florida Historical Museum in Tallahassee. I think it was like 1990. And the lady curator there asked me, well, did your father take these? And I said, well, I don't understand. He said, well, this stuff doesn't exist anymore. Well, sure it does. I, took, I showed it one of the pictures I had taken two weeks before this.
2: Is there a downside to making things look so beautiful? Um, people want to experience these beautiful locations, and in the process, perhaps they start loving them to death. What are your thoughts on that?
3: That is a big problem. I did a, a, a shot it's a little area in Big Cypress, and as soon as I put it online with a name, I was the first person in there. And then after a while, it's got it's got. Foot tracks, people go in there all the time now. Yeah, it's it's a problem. So now we don't put we try not to put too much of uh, put more general names on stuff, so people don't find them. I did a little pond in uh, Tetons. In fact, it's on cover of our book, National Park book we did, and now it's just being inundated by photographers. So yeah, it, it it has good points and bad points. Hopefully, the good outweighs the bad.
2: Hopefully so. What kind of um, crazy experiences have you had? Like, do you have one that comes to mind more than others? Any crazy close calls or, you know, super difficult challenges that you had to deal with um, when you were photographing a landscape?
3: Well, I was up in the mid-Florida of Kissimmee uh, Basin area, and I had a problem with a cow. This cow was just somehow got with my camera, she had her horns wrapped around my camera. Now I don't know what to do. I know what to do with a gator, but I don't know what to do with a cow. Then in um, out in uh, uh, Yellowstone, for some reason, I was going to try to photograph this buffalo with a large format camera. And there's a large format. You have to you have to get on your dark cloth. You have to focus it. I get all focused. I put the film. They move, moving and moving, and all of a sudden, I look up and he's two bulls fighting about 20 feet from me. And I said, I think I better get out of here. Because <laughs> when you have a dark cloth over you and this tripod, you look kind of like an animal. It's, it's kind of interesting you have a uh, dimension to you. And I was going to say to my, my wife, I think we better move. And Nikki and everybody else had gone. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't even close around. So I just stood still. And luckily, the, the guys went by. But um, I had a shot, a a problem in the north rim of the Grand Canyon. This was in the rutting season. And I was in a field and there was aspen up on the hill. It was probably, I don't know, four or five hundred feet away. And this elk, for some reason, got pissed off at me and started charging me. It came rolling down the hill right at me. So I picked my camera up on the tripod i was gonna i you can't outrun a, i can't run i don't think you can outrun a, an elk i don't think that's possible so i was gonna bop him and he turned about four or five feet from me that was that was probably the most dangerous thing i've had
2: do you have your own photographs hanging in your home and if so what are they
3: uh i have a choppy i have um uh trail number three which is uh, a field of uh, sawgrass and flowers and storm in the background and moonrise. But most of the photographs I have in my house are other photographers: Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, Wynne Bullock, John Sexton, uh, Alan Ross. Uh, I, I try to get other other photographers so that I can get a feeling for what other people are
2: doing also. Do you have two or three very favorite photographs of your own?
3: Well, choppy is one, obviously the other one is probably dunes, which is that one. I took me a week to photograph and, um, the cigar orchid pond Pretty liking that one. Now also I have one that's called it's, I have a couple of pepperwood and redwood forest. is really one of my favorites too. It's, um, When I in 1975, I was photographing the redwoods in color, and uh, a 300-foot redwood tree fell about 40 feet from me, right in front of me. And 20 years later, I went back to photograph the scene, what happened there where that tree fell, and how the whole the rebirth of the of the forest was happening. That's one of my favorite shots.
2: If you could have met Ansel Adams. What might you have asked him?
3: Oh, well, unfortunately, I never did meet him, and I would have liked to have met him. Well, I I don't know. I probably would have asked him why he's using graded papers instead of multi-contrast papers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, when he was shooting back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they didn't have good multiple contrast papers. So he invented the zone system so he could photograph and process his film so it would work on a, on the graded paper. Where now we have, it's the papers we have now and the enlargers we have now is kind of like uh, Photoshop. You can do all kinds of marvelous stuff in the darkroom that you can't do back then. But to see how he worked with the uh, graded papers, uh, it was pretty fascinating. The things he had to go
2: through What kind of tips would you give amateur photographers? Um, What what are some of the biggest mistakes they make? What are some small corrections they can do to get a better photo?
3: Well, probably the first mistake they make they don't look they don't try to understand the light. Like when you're inside of a forest and you have bright sun, you're going to have splotchy. You have blacks and whites, so you have to say, okay, I got to wait. overcast or or storm or rain or something most people don't in florida you have to understand that we are very flat not many mountains here so to to create dimensions in florida and actually anywhere wide angle lenses are very important people don't use wide angle lenses very very well photographers are starting to catch on to it but uh, like on my cell phone i have a A wide-angle attachment for my cell phone it's really sharp one of the things people are not doing now is making prints and you can get a person in particular they want to get semi-serious should have their own inkjet printer a good quality one I've always felt that you have to do your own printing whether it's uh, silver prints platinum prints inkjet prints for someone to learn their mistakes, they've got to make a print and say, "Okay, well, what went wrong there? What can I do to change it?" And a lot of times, uh, there's local camera shops like we have one in Bradenton. I'm sure you have camera shops there that have workshops uh, that help people out how to use their camera, what the 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 problems of overexposing or underexposing your your photograph. But a lot of it's just a lot of practice.
2: As you say, lighting is so important in photography, and you're known for patiently waiting for the right light. How do you know when the light is right?
3: You just do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, a uh, scene, for instance, you're sitting down waiting in a storm, and all of a sudden, a light hits the trees, and the, and the sky is dark, and you have this area that just pops out. That's the right light. You may have to wait, you know, like like the shot I took in the panhandle of the dunes. I was there for a whole week to take one picture. Uh, Not many people are going to do that. But understanding the light is the most important part of photography. Because What is photography
2: besides light? And folks who'd like to see your work can go to ClydeButcher.com. Clyde, I want to thank you for sharing your story with me. It has been a real pleasure getting to know the man behind the lens, and I wish you continued success.
3: Well, I think that uh, if you do the right things in life, you'll be successful.
2: Well, thank you so much and stay safe.
1: That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you've been out in the park since they've started to reopen, please send us a note about what you saw and what you thought you can reach us at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the
0: parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas.